What up, world? It's your past first point guard and Blazer beat writer Mike Richmond. You're listening to another episode of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, available wherever you get podcasts. Today's episode is another edition of the Monday Mailbag, a weekly segment where you submit questions and I answer them all episode long. If you want to get involved in Monday Mailbag, here's what you do. Either just send me a question on Twitter whenever you're thinking of it, at Mike G. Rich. You got a Blazer question, you know where to find me, send it my way, I'll save it and answer it on the show. Or, watch the skies on Monday morning, where I'll solicit questions via tweet, you can respond there and I'll answer them on the show. Either way, that's how you get involved. So let's get to it. Our first question comes from Brennan O'Donnell, at Brennan O'Donnell on Twitter, who asks two questions. First of all, what the hell? Second of all, why is this happening? Brennan, this is like the the crux of this whole podcast. What the hell and why is this happening? Here's the simple answers for you. And I wanted to start with this one because it's the tone setter for the whole dang episode. Thank you, Brennan, for understanding the tenor of Rip City as it currently stands. I would say, what the hell? Yeah, who knows? Who knows about that one? Why is this happening? The Blazers roster is not good. And they've been struck by a ton of injuries. Not even a ton of injuries. They've been struck by injuries to key parts. They put a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure into Zach Collins carrying this season for them. He was going to be the guy who could replace us on Whiteside if Whiteside was struggling. He was going to be the guy to play 35 minutes a night at power forward. He was going to be the defensive anchor for a team that didn't have any other power forwards than Anthony Tolliver on the roster. And then he got hurt. Their wing core was totally depleted after some trades this season. And the guys they brought in, Hazonia, Kent Bazemore, haven't helped. But you know that. You're just kind of venting. I'll let you vent. Thanks for the question, Brennan. This next one comes from Stay Mellow, parentheses Blazers in five, from at Justin underscore B underscore Leak on Twitter, who asks, can you explain the injury hardship exemption? how it works, and if the Blazers could or would use it. Okay, so there's two different things. There is an injury hardship exemption, which is when a team has four or more players who are sick or injured and have missed at least three regular season games and will continue to be unable to play. So that the Blazers don't necessarily qualify for that, but let me keep going. We've seen the hardship used recently. The Denver Nuggets used it to when they had a rash of injuries last December to sign Nick Young. There's also a second thing, which is the disabled player exception. And that exception allows a team that's over the salary cap to replace a disabled player, disabled player who will be out for the remainder of the season. This exception is granted by the league, but it needs a determination of an NBA designated physician um, or the fitness to play panel that the player is substantially more likely than not to be unable to play through the following June 15th. So they have to be out for a long time. For instance, when DeMarcus Cousins tore his ACL earlier this year, the Lakers applied for one. When John Wall, or beginning of the season, John Wall you know, tore his Achilles and is likely to miss the entire year, the Wizards applied for one and were not granted the right to use their disabled player exception. So those are the two different things. There's the hardship exemption, which the Blazers don't qualify for, and the disabled player exception, which the Blazers don't qualify for. And here's the problem, stay mellow. The Blazers don't have a full roster. You cannot get a hardship to um, 
add a player because they don't need one. They have an empty roster spot. If they want to go sign someone to fill in for all the injuries, for the the myriad injuries that have befallen them, they can just go do it. These exceptions come into play either when you have when you have a full roster and you need short-term relief or when you have a situation like Rodney Hood but you have all 15 spots filled. There's no uh, salary cap uh, benefit from this. You still pay both guys. So um, the Blazers, I guess, conceivably could sign a 15th player and then apply. But right now they are not in the running for either the hardship exemption or the disabled player exception. Thanks for the question. This next one comes from Jeff Ellsworth at ellsbells 8 on Twitter who asks, Hood's injury almost certainly leads to him exercising his option for next year, right? Not sure on his return timeline, but how will that impact the Blazers next year considering he probably would have signed for more money elsewhere if he continued at his current level of play? Jeff, I say this uh, not to criticize your question because I think it's actually a pretty astute observation, but I hate that when a player gets injured in such a terrible way like Rodney Hood that there are salary cap implications and financial questions that surround it. It's, feel, it's icky to me. But it is um, it is important and it's... And it, you're smart to point it out, Jeff. Uh, so, yeah, I think this makes him almost a lock to opt into his player option. But timeline-wise, it's really hard to say with these things. You'll remember Wesley Matthews tore his Achilles on March 5th and returned to play opening night by the end of October. He's probably on the very fast end of the timeline, just five months. I don't imagine Hood will be back playing NBA basketball in just five months. But he should be available, all things considered, it's likely he will be available is what the language I should use. It's likely he will be available on opening night next year. And f- what it means for the Blazers is that they, a guy that they had already committed to and really liked and was playing really well for them will be back in the fold for not much money. In the grand scheme of things, he signed the taxpayer mid-level for the full taxpayer mid-level, and it included that player option for $6 million next year. So he can opt into $6 million bucks have a guaranteed contract, and he'll be a on the Blazers roster next season. Okay, next segment, we're going to keep it rolling with more of your questions on this Monday mailbag episode. But before we get there, I want to tell you guys about Spotify Wrapped. If you're a Spotify listener, use Spotify Wrapped to show us your top Locked On podcast for the year. Take a screenshot and tag us at Locked On Live, and we'll share it and retweet it. Still Mailbag Monday, still answering more of your questions. Let's keep it rolling. This next one comes from Logan Gillis, whose last name I've been saying wrong for literally years. A loyal listener who did not correct me on the pronunciation of his last name. Logan, I am deeply apologetic and also mostly embarrassed. But here's your question, Logan. You asked, we know the Blazers are last in the league in assists, but where would they rank if... Screens that directly led to a made basket were counted as assists. Here's the good news, Logan. The NBA tracks this thing in publicly available data at stats.nba.com. And the Blazers, you probably weren't expecting this, are fourth in the league in screen assists per game. They average 10.9 screen assists per game. That's fourth best in the league. That leads to 25.3 screen assist points per game. Also fourth best in the league behind Utah, Boston, and Indiana. The top screen assist setters in the league, because I know you were asking it. Number one, Demontis Sabonis. Number two, Rudy Gobert. Number three, Wendell Carter Jr. of the Chicago Bulls. Number four, Tristan Thompson. Number five, 
Bam Adebayo, the guy who replaced Hassan Whiteside, and we got to talk about Hassan Whiteside if we're talking about assists. Look, it seems like Hassan Whiteside sets a bunch of weak-ass screens, and that is mostly because Hassan Whiteside sets a bunch of weak-ass screens. It is a real thing. You and I watch it, and so I don't know if I really believe wholeheartedly in the value of these screen assist numbers, but I'll tell you what, they're more favorable to Hassan than you or I would have guessed. I don't know, Logan, maybe you, maybe I'm reading too much into your question and you thought Hassan was an awesome screener. So if you did, guess what? He's a pretty good screener, dude. You were right. He's 13th in the league in total points created via a screen and 11th overall in screen assists. It's uh, one of the values of playing with Damian Lillard is that if you set a screen for him, he's going to go score because he's really good. Here's a sad one, though. Zach Collins, in three games this season, in the three games he appeared in, he was averaging 5.3 screen assists per game, which would have been good enough for third best in the league. Son Whiteside, like I said, all the way down at 11th at 4.1. Scal Labissier, 3.1 a game. Uh, in case you were wanting to compare, in 205 more minutes this season, Hassan Whiteside has 11 more screen assists than Scalabissier. Neither of them are particularly good screeners. Hassan's are more obvious, but I think he's been a little bit better in the pick and roll, even if his willingness to just set a wall-hard screen is very limited. He He's no Myers, Leonard, or Yusuf Nurkic. That is not, a, that is not his skill set. He doesn't set hard screens, but the numbers... Maybe a little more favorable towards the Blazers and the big and their big center than you would have guessed. Okay, this next one comes from Mumbling Bearded Freak at Mumbling Bearded Freak without the vowels on Twitter. Embling Bird Frick, if you're uh, if you're trying to find him on there. But they ask the team seems to be more vocal with officials this season, culminating with Stotts' ejection versus the Lakers. Mumbling Bearded Freak followed up to point out that there were multiple technical fouls in the following game after they asked this question. You're right. But they, they went on to ask, is this a frustration? Is this frustration in poor play? Possibly the change in the roster? Or do they have a legitimate gripe with the officiating this season? Noting that it seems out of character for the Blazers. Okay, we're going back to tracking data for this one. I told you, I literally just said in the last answer that I didn't like tracking data. But I think this is kind of the best way to do this. But let me first by, start by answering your question. Against the Lakers specifically last Friday, the Blazers got a bad whistle. They, got a, they just got a bad whistle. Uh, that's a lot of things. Some of it is bad luck. Some of it is LeBron James. Some of it is Anthony Davis. Uh, but they got a bad whistle in that game. They got some, they got some, they did not get some calls that they probably needed. They got a ton of touch fouls guarding Anthony Davis. And another thing before I hit you with tracking data. I don't know if it's out of character. I think Damian Lillard complains as much as any star in the league. He spends a lot of time talking to the refs. That's kind of part of the job. You, like, that, unfortunately or fortunately, whatever the way you want to look at it, the if you are a star player in the league, you need to lobby the refs to get them to give you calls in your favor. That is the uh, nature of the judgment business. So I don't know if it's out of character for him. It might be out of character for other guys. I haven't watched Carmelo Anthony closely enough to know if he's a whiner, but... Um, wouldn't surprise me. Star players, they like to whine. Okay, here's the data, though. Is it a legitimate gripe? Some nights, sure. But are the are the Blazers in general, or Dame in general, let's say, getting a worse call than other stars in the league? According to NBA's tracking data, he ranks 20th in the NBA in drives per game. 
So he's not as frequent a driver as James Harden or as uh, De'Aaron Fox was when he was healthy or even Spencer Dinwiddie who has ball in his hands a lot, uh, Bradley Beal, those types. But he's a regular driver. He's one of the, he drives some of the most, he's one of the most frequent guys who attacks the basket in the league. And among those 20, Dame actually ranks 10th in the percentage of time that he draws a foul. So I would say on average, Dame even gets maybe slightly more calls than guys who attack the rim as much as him. About 8% of his drives end with a foul call. Uh, For James Harden, the incredible foul magnet, about 13% of his drives end in foul call. He draws a lot of fouls with not driving to the rim. Jimmy Butler leads the league in percentage of drives that end in a foul, 13.7. The other among the league leaders, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Lou Williams, people who are just good at drawing fouls. I think the Blazers have a right to gripe sometimes. I also just think they're frustrated because their season's going the wrong direction. All right, next question. This is from play, plain old Pete Normal at Bob underscore Deager on Twitter, who asks, hypothetically, if a player has to leave a game due to Achilles soreness, but returns two days later to play another game, what party or parties would have been responsible for signing off on clearing him to play? Coaches, medical staff, both. Uh, coaches are pretty much not involved in this type of thing from at least my experience, the way the Blazers do it, other teams might do it differently, but in specifically with the old fight and pinwheels, here's what happens. Terry Stotts is in his office after the game, and Jess Ellis, the Blazers director of player health and performance, comes in, gives him an up- update on who got hurt, who's who's where. When they're doing rehab stuff with Yusuf Nurkic, Jess Ellis is the guy who's making the decisions. And then he updates Terry Stotts on, hey, Terry, uh, Ed Davis is available. He can play 11 minutes tonight. Those types of things. So the coaches, let's absolve the coaches from blame. Mostly. And uh, Carmelo Anthony actually talked about this after, immediately after the game. He was unaware that, uh, that Rodney Hood was uh, dealing with a nagging injury, which is another reminder that players often do not know what other guys are going through because they are so laser-focused on just getting to the next game because there's 80 of these things and you've got to just keep them moving. They do not consume as much sort of info as media and fans do. That's just an aside, but I thought it's worth pointing out. But Melo pointed this out immediately after the game is that usually these things are a combination of training staff says they've they run you through the evaluations. They determine whether uh, they think there's a risk of further injury and all those things. And then you as a player make the decision. And generally speaking, the players have the final call. Obviously, there's injury designations that would push them one way or another, and there's times when the training staff will specifically hold a player out. But if a player wants to play and he's determined well enough to play, it's his final choice with some input from the medical staff. So if you're looking to point blame in this hypothetical situation where one player maybe had an Achilles issue and then ruptured his Achilles two days later... I think the blame has to go to some to Rodney Hood for maybe playing through it and a lot to the Blazers medical staff because someone has to know when guys are in real danger of severe injuries. I don't know enough about the body and all those things to 
point a firm finger, but I can tell you it wasn't the coaching staff. That's just not how it works. Okay, next question. At C, This is from CJ at Friggin' Winning on Twitter who asks, When I was nine years old, my dad took me to the players' parking area outside Memorial Coliseum to get autographs when the Blazers' players and coaches arrived. Allah Abdul Nahadi was my first autograph from a professional athlete. Who was your first autograph from? So I don't remember first. I'm not 100% sure about first. I assume that it was someone who played for the Durham Bulls, the at the time the AA farm team of the Atlanta Braves based in Durham, North Carolina. But I do remember an early, I was 10 or 11, um, autograph when... I went to a University of North Carolina women's basketball game, and up in the stands was Anton Jameson, Vince Carter, and this like fairly obscure Carolina basketball player named Terrence Newby, who I'm sure none of you have ever heard of. So I went up there, and I got Vince's autograph, and I got Antoine's autograph, and I got Terrence Newby's autograph because I was a huge fan, and I could recognize them by face even at even as like a fifth grader. And both Vince and Antoine Jameson, there was a fourth dude sitting with him, and they kept trying to convince me to get their buddy's autograph, who was just their homie from college. And I said, he doesn't play on the team. And they were cracking up. And I was like, he's not a basketball player. I don't want his autograph. And Vince and Antoine uh, laughed at me a whole bunch. That's my uh, autograph story. Next question comes from Matthew at Reverend Romulus, who asks, what is the team missing most? Three-point efficiency they aren't getting from Bays and are no longer going to get from Hoodie? Or the complete and inability for Dame to get a properly set screen. Yeah, um, <laughs> I do think their offense is a little wonky because they missed the heavy screen setters, but as I pointed out earlier in this segment, that might be a little bit overblown just because Damian Lillard is so damn good in the pick and roll. I think here's the thing they're missing. They're missing a rebounder. They're missing someone to finish possessions as a high-level defensive rebounder. They have always been the last few seasons, among the league leaders in both offensive and defensive rebounding. The offensive rebounding is a nice plus, but it's not necessarily something that will would really change the fate of this team. Sure, it would get them a couple easy buckets, but I don't think it's as important as just finishing possessions on defense. They're missing that size. They're missing three-point shooting. And I think the thing they're going to miss without Rodney Hood the most is someone who you can pass the ball to and they can dribble and go score. It's, it might seem weird with the team with Dame and CJ and Carmelo Anthony, but they just don't have another guy who can score off the dribble, who can create right now. Anthony Simons maybe was supposed to be that, but at this current state, he is not. That's not what he is. He cannot reliably go get you 15 to 20 each night in the league. He's not ready to be there. They're really going to miss that ability from Rodney Hood to catch the ball on the weak side, pump fake, take a couple dribbles, either step into a shot or even go to work, post up, pull up in the paint, you know, create his own offense. They're definitely going to miss that. Okay, went a little long in the second segment, that, but that's never deterred me before. I'm still going to come back for segment number three, answering more of your questions to close out Monday Mailbag. All right, still Monday Mailbag, still Mike Richmond, still pass first point guard, still locked on Blazers, all the things you know. We're still here. This next question, as we close out Monday Mailbag, comes from Sir Wheezy at Wheezy Sir on Twitter, who asks, so that was a tough loss against OKC. Are you in the camp of punting on the season and tanking or pressing forward and fighting for 7th or 8th seed? And if the Blazers do trade for Kevin Love, do you see him starting at center, even if it's just for a short term? Wheezy, there is a lot going on in this question. You First you asked me if the Blazers should tank, and then all of a sudden the Blazers like have Kevin Love and they're deciding what position to play him at? 
holy cow, what a ride. Um, I am not a fan of punting on the season right now. Uh, it's the Blazers stink. Like as of today, the Blazers stink. It looks bleak for them. I don't think they're a good team and don't think they have with this current iteration of the roster, a chance to be a good team, but punting on the season as it stands when they're still sort of three games out of the playoffs seems a little bit early for me. You can punt on the season in February and tank just fine. You might not be at the absolute bottom of the standings, but I think they could, (laughs) they're going to lose games naturally. So they don't need to tank intentionally just yet. They'll be pretty bad on their own. And then if they want to pull the plug on the season, you can do that in February. And the Kevin Love thing, yeah, I think he's a center. We'll talk more about that soon. Next question at from Anthony Tonkin, at Anthony Tonkin on Twitter, who asks, with Mello and Trench as the starting four, does that rule out the Blazers trading for Kevin Love? Or could Carmelo slide down to the three? Sir Weezy, I told you we'd get back to it, and we got back to it immediately. Here's the thing, Anthony. I'm addressing both you guys. I'm addressing everyone, but I like to address the question asker by name. So, Anthony, um... Kevin Love is more of a five than Carmelo Anthony is a three. I asked Terry Stotts before the game against OKC about how he felt about maybe trying Nazir Little and Carmelo Anthony out together. He basically said, both of those guys are better at four. We don't need to do that yet. That might change because they look pretty bad against OKC. But I think Melo is just so clearly a power forward. He hasn't been a small forward in a decade. That said... It doesn't rule out a trade for Kevin Love because mostly because Kevin Love is better than Carmelo Anthony. Uh, he's got some injury problems and he's not an elite defender and playing him at center alongside Carmelo Anthony, assuming that's how it worked out, would be kind of a nightmare. But I think it's easier to play Kevin Love at at five. I think he's he can be a center in the majority of lineups. I think the rest of his career, he's more center than power forward. But that's just me. So yeah, I don't think um, Carmelo Anthony will prevent the Blazers from getting Kevin Love. There could be a variety of other things that do. Okay, next question that comes from Parshall at Jack Parshall on Twitter who asks, Assuming that there's an upcoming trade after December 15th, which I would encourage to gain talent, I believe absolute best case scenario is 8th seed and a first round exit. What are your thoughts? Hashtag tank like warriors. Parshal, absolute best case scenario. I, we're using absolutes and the and the brightest you can dream on this beautiful mailbag Monday is that the Blazers end up eighth in the West. Parshal, think back a few months, dear friend. Think back a few months. You were sitting there and you were saying the Blazers could win the championship, and when Yusuf Nurkic gets healthy, it's on, baby. Maybe you weren't saying that, but a lot of your friends were. So if you thought that six weeks ago, how can you say that the best they can get is eighth? As it stands today, they're two games out of seventh. They could win two in a row against bad teams. Like they won't. They won't do this. They're going to break your hearts. They're in heartbreak mode. But they're two games out of seventh right now, and they're awful. So yeah, the brightest I can dream is that the Blazers finish sixth. And take on, like, the Nuggets again in the first round and spring an upset. I don't know. I don't really believe all that. But I can believe, I can dream brighter than you, 
um, just because it's December 9th. There's a long way to go. It's a long way to go. And to answer your questions about tanking, I've already answered that. I think you can wait to tank. They're already bad. They'll naturally lose games. Doesn't matter. Okay, as you probably guessed by now, this third segment is all about trades. You guys had a lot of questions about trades because it's almost trade season. As Parshal pointed out, December 15th, pretty much the whole league is available to be traded. It's the unofficial start of trade season in the NBA. So you were all very curious, including Paint in PDX, who asks... With things getting worse by the day, should the Blazers still be looking to make a win-now trade, even if it's adds long-term salary, or should they be in asset acquisition mode, i.e. trying to shed salary and acquire youth and picks? Okay, listen, asset acquisition mode is the most Neil Olshay term, so um, welcome to the front office. You're now Neil. Maybe this is Neil's burner account. Why are you so friendly to me about my podcast with your burner account, Neil? Uh, okay, should they... I, I'm, I don't know if they need to make a win now trade. Like I wouldn't recommend, they're not going to, they don't want to trade Anthony Simons or Zach Collins. In fact, it, the Blazers might not want to trade anyone. They might just want to tough it out. But in general, I don't think they need to necessarily need to make a win now trade where you give up one of those guys in order to add a vet. But the idea that I think it would be a mistake to let Kent Bazemore and Hassan Whiteside's expiring contracts just come off the books and go into the offseason with a little bit of cap space that you're not going to be able to use particularly effectively because this team has struggled to sign impact-free agents. Particularly coming off, if they're coming off a bad season, it makes it even harder to attract impact free agents. So I think you do, I think it is important to make a trade because that is the Blazers' best avenue for getting better is trades. They're not, uh, you know, draft picks take take long. There's just not too, too many guys you can you can acquire through the draft who are ready to be high-level players right away. I don't know if the Blazers have the can afford with Simons and Collins and Nazir Little already in the mix to add another guy who's going to take a couple seasons to get there. They don't have that. Their timeline is much, much narrower with uh, Damon CJ's prime. So I think you, I, I would be in favor of still making a trade for the for them to make a trade to upgrade their roster, period, just because I think that's the best way to upgrade their roster. Um, the sh- Shedding salary and getting younger doesn't seem like the way to A, keep Dame happy, and B, maximize his time with the team. Okay, next couple questions. All trade stuff. Joey Pushki, or Pushk, at Blazers fan triple zero asks, I've been hearing that Aldridge would be a good trade. What do you think of a trade like that? Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge would be <laughs> potentially the Blazers' second best player immediately upon arrival. I don't know what the... I do know what the Spurs would want. They'd want Zach Collins, straight up. And I think that's a non-starter. There doesn't seem like a lot of value for the Spurs to take on Hassan Whiteside's contract and get cheaper and, and shed a pick, or, in, or and get a pick. That doesn't seem like the direction that the Spurs would want to go. And I don't think... Of all the sort of big-name targets... Aldridge seems like the hardest one to acquire, but he's really good and he would help them at least in the short term. Okay, next question is from John Ryan McMahon at John R. McMahon on Twitter who asks, how do you imagine Marvin Williams might fit on the Blazers? Oh, you mean former University of North Carolina 2005 national champion Marvin Williams? How would that Marv fit on the Blazers? I guess theoretically he'd be an upgrade over Anthony Tolliver, but Marvin Williams is pr- 
pretty far removed from he, when he looked like a really good player in 2015-2016. He can still shoot, shooting 40% from three this year, but he's 33 years old. And while the Blazers could pretty much use anyone that could play backup power forward, so it's hard for me to say that Marvin Williams wouldn't be an upgrade, I'm not sure he does much for them. Although, I guess shaking up the bench and adding a new flavor of 30-year-old veteran could help. But yeah, I don't think he does much for him. But uh, as, I don't know if you're, you're playing to my biases or just picking out a random bench player. But yeah, I'm always in favor of adding Tar Heels to the roster. This is Chapel Hill bias right here. All right, last question. More trade talk. This one from Jordan Poe. At Jordan Powell 456 on Twitter. Okay, so maybe it's Jordan Powell. But Jordan asks, Drew Holiday trade target, yay or nay? Drew Holiday's really good. I think he's one of... I don't know if underrated is the right word. He's on a max contract. Maybe underappreciated players in the league. But he doesn't seem like a good target for the Blazers, right? He plays the same position as their two best players. Is trading away C.J. McCollum, a good friend of Damian Lillard, to get a probably an overall upgrade in terms of his complementary skill set to Damian Lillard. But maybe... Uh, kind of just a lateral move. Is trading away C.J. McCollum to add Drew Holiday really worth it? And assuming, maybe you're assuming some situation where they don't have to trade away C.J. McCollum. Is trading, is adding another max contract to, who plays the same position as your two best players, a way to make this Blazers team more competitive? If Drew Holiday was six foot nine, I'd say add him. But uh, for this particular team, while I really appreciate and enjoy watching Drew Holiday, I'm not sure how they get him and also make the team like a lot better. I'm not sure how they jump forward a lot. Although maybe just for shaking it up in terms of uh, CJ McCollum trades, that's about as fun a one as I can dream up. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Monday Mailbag. I really, really appreciate all of you for sending in questions. If you want to get involved in Monday Mailbag, we do it each week on Mondays, hence the branding. I send out a call for questions on Monday morning at Mike G. Rich on Twitter, but you don't have to wait for Monday. You can send me a question anytime you have one throughout the week. I got the internet. I'll see it. I'll save it to my little Word doc and we'll, I'll answer them on the show. It almost always publishes on Tuesday morning, but occasionally publishes a little bit early. Never later than Tuesday, though. Monday Mailbags. Get involved if you want to, at Mike G. Rich on Twitter. Also, do me a favor, tell your friends about this podcast. They can find it wherever they get podcasts. Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. I appreciate you guys listening. Talk to you soon.